Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy and uh, part of the podcasting, the Hockey Podcasting Brethren. It's Ian Talk. Ian, what's going on, man? Not too much. I've been trying to get on this show for a while now. I've been listening to you for a while, and uh, I'm glad that we were finally able to make this work. I think you're going to be hopping on the Leafs Geeks podcast right after this, so should be a fun evening. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, the uh, the always fun podcast crossover. So we're gonna do we're gonna deep dive the Leafs on my side of things and then when we hop over to yours we're going to do like a litany of western conference topics i think that you've prepared for us and i guess it's uh it's fitting considering uh we're going to be covering the leafs on this podcast and then on the leafs geek podcast we're going to be doing uh, the western conference and, and eliminating that eastern conference bias so we're given a we're given a healthy dose of a little bit of everything for our listeners gotta give the people what they want you know leafs geeks podcast coming for that western conference uh, deep dive exactly gotta give yes. the people what they want yeah um well i'm excited to talk about the leafs i uh you know it, it's funny because given the state of hockey media and how much the leafs get cover and how many um you know well-followed voices there are online you, there's certainly no shortage of leafs content and leafs coverage for my part i've written about them quite a bit this year on espn just because i think that um the sort of the splits of before and after the coaching change are really fascinating and how it's unlocked Austin Matthews and various other storylines there. But in terms of the podcast, beyond just reacting to the immediate news of Mike Babcock's firing, I actually haven't covered the Leafs that much on this show, which I think would surprise a lot of people that, that don't listen to the show. But I don't know. I just, I, I find that there's so much other content out there and it's kind of all those angles are already being covered that I feel like I'm good on my end. So I can just focus on other stuff. So not that they're not an interesting team by any means. It's just that like, I, I find that there's very few sort of unique angles you can hit at this point with the Leafs that haven't already been talked about ad nauseum on various different platforms. Yeah, there's a lot of Leafs fatigue, I think, in hockey media when it comes to what we're talking about, whether or not Austin Matthews is the best 200-foot player in hockey. And I'm thinking in my head, when, when they asked that question, he wasn't even that good defensively at the start of the season. And Connor McDavid was lighting it up. It's It can be a bit frustrating in this market sometimes because... 
I'm a Leafs fan and I'm writing about it, trying to be objective about it and trying my best to bring a unique spin on things that people want to listen to. But I understand the frustration with the fact that every radio station you listen to, whether or not it's Toronto based, is going to be talking about the Toronto Maple Leafs, even when they're struggling. It reminds me a lot of the L.A. Lakers over the last few years in, in basketball when they were just completely irrelevant and ESPN would be starting off their coverage talking about the Lakers. It's not fun. No one likes listening to that. But I agree with you. I think the Leafs are actually a fascinating story story ever since the Babcock firing because they started off the season, frankly, really poorly. I know their shot differentials at five on five were, were solid. They were getting into the offensive zone and staying there more often than they were in the defensive zone, but their shot quality was pathetic. They were shooting from the boards. They were shooting from the blue line. It was a really weird uh, just set of circumstances because this is a team who over the previous three seasons was top three in the league when it came to shot quality. They were generating shots from in tight, those high danger chances. When you look at Austin Matthews' heat map, it's just a pool of red in front of the net because that's where he <laughs> generates his, his chances. But under Mike Babcock this season, for whatever reason, a lot of point shots. Sheldon Keefe has since come in, and I think we're going to be talking about their possession style of play and yep. some of the cool things they do in the offensive zone to help prevent their defensemen from taking those shots, getting the puck a bit deeper into the O-zone down the wall, and then they're looking to create those cross-seam passes into the middle of the ice. And I'm sure anyone who listens to your podcast knows that if you can get the, pa- uh, the puck going from east to west and force mm-hmm. the goalie to move laterally in his crease, you're really going to open up a lot of net, and that's going to help increase your shooting percentage. So... I think the Leafs have done a fantastic job of that over the last month or so under Sheldon Keefe. There are definitely some flaws that we're going to talk about, but if you compare what they were under Mike Babcock to what they've been under Sheldon Keefe, it's night and day. They're a top five possession team in the league right now, and they've been a fun team to watch. Yeah, to that point of uh, the East-West passes, I think, you know, Austin Matthews is one of the few players I'd see in the league. There's, I don't know, whatever you want to you cap the list at. It's a very short, finite group of guys who can, like, cleanly beat a goalie with their shot, even when the goalie's set. And part of that is because of his sort of unpredictability from all the different angles and all the different uh, shooting pockets he can get he can get maximum velocity off of. But when you have some of these plays, and I think there was an, an instance of it in the most recent game against the Devils where um, Marner's flinging the, the puck east-west and the goalie doesn't have time to get set and he's moving it's like for that i mean when you have austin matthews it's basically the hockey equivalent of like an alley-oop yeah it reminds me of when alex ovechkin gets a cross seam pass and if the goalie hasn't already read that pass then it's game over because that player can beat you when you're standing still if you're moving east-west in your crease you don't have much of a chance at it so that's what a lot of teams have learned is that if you can force the defense to kind of shift laterally if you can force the goaltender to shift laterally it's going to open up a lot of space for that shooter to put the puck in the net even if it's not an austin matthews even if it's an alexander kerfoot a pierre engvall uh a player at lower in the lineup if you can create that movement in the offensive zone that's what's going to drive a goaltender nuts and i think they've been doing a really good job of that with sheldon keith um, if you don't mind i'd love to talk about some of the things they've been doing tactically in the offensive zone just because i think it's a really fascinating thing that the team's doing i know the vancouver canucks are doing it a little bit too where they'll have a, a third forward support really high in the offensive zone and with the leafs it's basically almost like they have three defensemen on the ice in the offensive mm-hmm. zone the center comes extremely high or sometimes it's a winger we just call it f3 in the offensive zone the third forward comes extremely high towards the blue line and that way when he comes there the defensemen know that they have the freedom to skate down the boards into open space and for the Leafs that's been a Morgan Riley that's been a Travis Dermott a Justin Hall sometimes it's a Cody Ceci and it doesn't go too great (laughs) but most of the time it works out well because the defenseman is skating to open space you continue the cycle instead of shooting the puck from the blue line and I think one of the weird things about the blue line in hockey we don't talk about it enough is that 
offside weirdly prevents you from creating offense because it traps you in the offensive zone all of a sudden you skate the buck back to your blue line you can't go back any further so a lot of the times teams feel forced to fire a puck on net not because they think it's the best decision but because they don't want to lose the puck so they just quickly get rid of it uh what sheldon keeps trying to do is he wants that third forward to come high for support the defenseman has a passing outlet so he doesn't have to fire that low percentage shot you maintain possession work the puck down lower in the zone and look for that high percentage shot they've been doing a much better job of that lately over the past month or two and it's a big part of the reason that their shot quality is increased exponentially well and i, I thought uh you weren't even going to take it that route so it's interesting you bring that up because when you when you started talking about that what i thought you were going to reference was what i've noticed is in the neutral zone there's been a lot more and you don't really see it much especially at five on five and hockey you see it a lot more um in three on three when everyone kind of keys in on the importance of possession and not giving it away but it's a much more of like kind of like a soccer tactic where there's been instances where i think under mike babcock the forward that's approaching the opposing blue line would have just dumped it in and gone off for a change but instead they're shifting the puck and kind of cycling it back to their defensemen and reloading and coming with reinforcements and then that's allowing them to not only keep the possession but have fresh legs to attack off the rush which they've also done a lot more of and which has also kind of coincided with that discrepancy in quality of looks under Keith as opposed to Babcock when they were focusing and trying to become this sort of cycle team which I much more equated to like jamming a square peg into a round hole where it was like Babcock went into the season with this idea of we're not going to lose in the playoffs again the same way we lost the past couple of years so we're going to play this brand of hockey and it doesn't matter if we don't have the personnel equipped for it because I'm just going to go down with the ship and ultimately he did and so I, I thought that's what you're going to bring up because I think that is also uh, a significant change from what was happening at the start of the year and a big reason for the for the newfound success offensively. And the way you described it, reloading on the breakout, I think is a perfect way of describing it because you realize that it's a one on three. You're skating the puck up the ice, out of your own blue line, past center ice, and you realize you're not going to get in the offensive zone. Instead of just flipping the puck in, going off for a line change and giving the other team the puck, if you're skilled enough, why don't you just spin back, pass it back to your defenseman, Hop off the ice. Now your team has the puck. Five fresh legs come over the ice, or I guess ten fresh legs, five new bodies come over the ice, and now you can attack with numbers. And we see it in soccer all the time because you would never see in soccer a one-on-three where the player just launches the ball over the net and, you know, oh, other team has a goal kick now, it's okay. We've got our team back on defense, we're set. We'd never do that because that's not a smart play. Yet in hockey all the time, we're encouraged, you know, get the puck deep, you know, puck's in deep, got to dump and change. I've never loved it as a strategy. I really like what Sheldon keeps doing because the emphasis is puck possession. You don't want the other team to have the puck and you want to do everything you can to A, hold on to it, and B, to get it back. And I think they've been doing an excellent job of that. Uh, William Nylander, I feel like, has always played that way. When he doesn't see a clean entry for him, he'll just swing back, circle back, pick up more speed, and gain the zone the next time. One of my favorite players watching it on the Leafs lately has been Pierre Engvall, who most people mm. probably haven't heard of. And he's six foot five. Most of it is in his neck, but he's a really talented hockey player. He's, he's lanky, he's long, he's got some speed, and he's been playing in the top six lately because of some injuries on left wing for Toronto. And he's actually looked really good there. In fact, he's looked good enough that it's making people question whether or not a player like Andreas Janssen or Kasper Kapanen is potentially expendable in a trade for a defenseman because of just how good some players on the left wing have looked this year. Pierre Engvall is a name. Ilya Mikhaev suffered a a really nasty wrist injury. His his wrist got uh, sliced by a a hockey skate, but... 
he'd been fantastic this year. He looked like a, a Zach Hyman plus basically on the wing. So I think the Leafs have been a really fascinating team under Sheldon Keith because not only are they looking a bit different tactically, they're giving some opportunities to some players that Mike Babcock wasn't willing to give some extra leash to. And players like Pierre Engvall, Justin Hall, we're seeing what they can do in a bigger role. And they've looked really good this year. Well, and I do think, you know, when you start talking about stuff like this and you start um, citing some of these stats, I think because of that sort of Leafs media fatigue, a lot of people who aren't fans of the Toronto Maple Leafs start rolling their eyes and start kind of overcompensating by being hyperbolic on the on the other extreme. And I think the reason why I did want to deep dive this team and, and dive into some of these numbers and some of these structural changes is because it is so different from what's happening in the round, around the league in the sense of, you know, we've seen this trend this season with... Um, the most recent coach firing being the seventh one and part and a couple of them have been sort of, you know, gross misconduct where they were mistreating their players or doing various unacceptable things. And that's part of it. And then there's a couple performance related reasons, which are usually because the team's goalie just can't buy them a save and they have a sub 900 save percentage. And so the coach gets blamed, like in Nashville, for example, or even, uh, New Jersey and San Jose to, to a degree. In this case, I mean, there is the Babcock stuff that came out about, you know, the list with Mark and how the players really didn't seem to like playing under him. But I think for our purposes, there's also such a sort of tangible difference to point to both structurally and stylistically and how they're playing that we can learn from and you can adapt if you're another team that's paying attention and sort of see with the same personnel, really. I know they've had a slightly easier schedule at times and... I know they have some injuries now, but there was a while there where they got Marner back and they got Tavares back and they were kind of firing on all cylinders. At the same time, though, with the same personnel, they're getting significantly different results. And I think that does really lay credence to the impact a coach can have in a league where at times it's it's tough to quantify that because a lot of it does happen behind the scenes. And I know a lot of Leafs fans kind of feel vindicated over the past month because of the frustrations that a lot of us have had over the last few years. With Babcock, it's interesting because there's clearly this track record of success that he had back in Detroit and Team Canada. And you can't take that away from him. He had those successes for a reason. He was a very solid coach at getting the most out of his players. Even his first two years in Toronto, I think we forget that with a, a roster that consisted of players like Rich Clune and Sean Mathias and Brad Boys playing in the top six, he, he got that team to outshoot and outchance the opposition in 2015-2016 during the tank year. They couldn't buy a save and they couldn't score a goal in the power play because P- Peter Holland was on PP1. P.A. Parento was on those teams too, wasn't he? Maple Leaf legend. P.A. Yeah. Parento, Cody Franson, uh, Martin Marincin, all the analytics darlings, mm-hmm. my, my favorites. It was a fun team. It was a great team. <laughs> but um, he got that team of basically misfits to play well at even strength. He got a team of rookies to get to the playoffs in 2016-17. So I can understand why a lot of Babcock truthers out there are are insisting that this man is a legend. And, you know, even though there are going to be some negatives that come with him, if you follow any team closely around the league, you're going to be frustrated with the player that he puts on his third pairing or that one winger he gives too many minutes to or that one veteran that he needs to take out of the lineup, but he refuses to take out of the lineup. I think all 31 fan bases have those frustrations. But I think with Babcock, the really frustrating thing was his unwillingness to change anything. The fact that he thought that the way that this roster was meant to play this year, you know, have Morgan Riley and Tyson Berry sitting back and ask them to play a bit more defensively. That's really not a good idea if you've ever watched those two players play. They're not good without the puck. They're special with the puck, but without the puck, they're a bit of an adventure in their own end. Uh, the, the long stretch passes last year when Nikita Zaitsev, Ron Hainsey, and Roman Polak are your right side defensemen. It's just, it, it wasn't a well-conceived plan, and it, and it was frustrating for a lot of us who said, you have a phenomenal 
forward group up front. Why don't you build a system around getting them the puck and having them skate the puck up the ice with possession? We never really got to see it, and we're seeing it this year under Sheldon Keefe, and it looks fantastic. So I think you made a great point when it comes to square peg, round hole. Sometimes that's the biggest thing with coaches. It's not necessarily having your system, and you know, any team you go to, you bring the Babcock system. The idea is you arrive at a team that has a certain set of players, and you need to maximize their skill sets. And I think that's what Sheldon Keefe has done a solid job of so far. But we can talk about some of the negatives if you want, because there definitely are some things we should point out. Well, let's, let's stick with the positives, because I think they do exceed the negatives and and you know we've talked a bit sort of about austin matthews but i really want to dive into that because that was ultimately especially during last year's postseason and then to start this year um that was the thing i kept coming back to as sort of the the most unacceptable um misutilization it just felt like I know from the outside, there was a lot of like annoyance with the fact that it felt like they didn't want to take the training wheels off and they were really uh, taking baby steps with increasing his ice time. And I get it from the perspective, especially the regular season with the 82 game grind that you want to stretch it out and you want to uh, maintain the players uh, health and longevity and optimize their performance, especially with how much the Leafs are invested in sports science and all of that makes sense and all of it is well and good. So when you were looking at the regular season stats and all the per 60 rates i totally understood it but then when you enter the playoffs and especially game seven i remember i was actually in toronto last spring at the yahoo offices and just sitting there watching that and it was just everyone in the office was just in disbelief that matthews was going to end the game playing under 19 minutes and when they were down one goal and had to create offense they just basically refused to adapt or adjust the script and it was like the same as a another game in november against the ottawa senators where they were just rolling their lines and they were playing all the guys regardless of how good of a chance they gave them to create some of that offense they needed and so I think that was the thing for me that was kind of the the line in the sand and the thing that you really couldn't overlook and we've seen it now under Keith what Austin Matthews with the right usage and the right uh, exposure on the ice can do and you know part of it is a bit shooting and percentage inflated but I think they're really kind of unlocking him here now to challenge David Pasternak for that goal scoring title and I think it's be a fascinating race and the other thing that we should mention as well that I really like under Keith is there's none of that like oh we're doing things just because because that's the way we've always done it. I've seen a lot of experimenting and willingness to kind of mix and match and try new things. And the fact that they're all of a sudden, despite having some success, basically flipped Marner and Elander on the wings and unlocked the both of those lines now kind of reach their full potential. I think that really speaks to both Keefe's uh, willingness to try new stuff and also the players involved and, and the fact that there was more there to kind of squeeze. Uh, if you're using uh, the example of kind of like squeezing that orange and trying to get as much juice as you can out of it. Yeah, and I think you had a great tweet about this, about Austin Matthews, the the five uh, most longest minutes he'd ever played in a game. Like his five games with the most minutes have all come within the last month yeah. under Shelton yep. Keefe. And in games where you're losing, it turns out having the best even strength goal scorer on the planet play more minutes is a good thing. And <laughs> uh, the Leafs in that game seven that you, you referenced, they were trailing that game, I think since 10 minutes in the first period, they were trailing the entire game. And there were right, Frederick Gauthier and Patrick Marlowe were still getting regular shifts. I had to write a post game article on that. I've been doing the the post game Leafs report cards this year for all eighty two games. Last year I was doing the playoffs, and having to write that column was maybe the hardest thing I've had to do in my life because I was just so frustrated. The inner Leafs fan of me couldn't believe that a coach wasn't willing to play his best player more than eighteen and a half minutes, and. 
I, I ended up pulling through and I ended up trying my best to be objective. And I asked Rachel Dory, my good friend afterwards, was I too hard on Babcock? I, I wanted to try to be objective here. And she angrily responded, you were not harsh enough. So <laughs> I think the, the temperature in Leafs Nation after that game, uh, I think management certainly earned some clout with the fans that if they wanted to fire Babcock that offseason, I think they would have had uh, some positive responses from the fans. And after a, a month and a half into the season where the team was drastically underperforming, it reached the point where I think most Leafs fans wanted Babcock to be fired. So it was an interesting set of circumstances. But you brought up Austin Matthews. How good he has looked under Sheldon Keefe lately. It's so much fun to watch him in the offensive zone because there's more motion now. There's more movement. There's yeah. more open space for both the defensemen and the forwards. Getting Austin Matthews into more open space it's a lot of fun to watch because like you said, his release on his wrist shot, it's, it's so unique. It's so quick. It's so deceptive. Goaltenders don't know how to read it. But the thing that he's added this season that he's never had before is that one time slap shot for the longest time in his, his career up until really this year, he'd been a exclusively a wrist shot, snapshot kind of guy, much like a Phil Kessel or Max Pacioretty. He was phenomenal at it. He arguably has a, a top three wrist shot in the world, but he didn't have that Ovechkin, Patrick Lane, Ilias Pettersson, one time ball that he could let go on the power play or off a cross ice pass even strength now he's added that to his game and i think that's part of the reason that he's really going to challenge david pasternak this year because it's not just the one-dimensional kind of off the rush snipe of a wrist shot he's got now now if he gets a bit of open space without the puck all of a sudden he might be the most dangerous player on the ice and you really need to account for him and i know you've brought this up with patrick lani in the past when you have that weapon as a shooter it opens up space for the other four skaters on the ice yeah no it does and and we've seen it i mean he's got what 18 goals in his past 17 games he's got 20 goals and 24 games under keith um you know the the overall minutes are up about nearly a minute but it's like a minute and a half or so extra at five on five compared to what i'm seeing under babcock and i think the biggest change for me here and i'm glad you mentioned that um, um, ozone movement and I think it's coincided with that move that I suggested earlier which was uh, flipping the wingers and giving uh, Marner a longer look alongside Matthews and one of the stats that I was most sort of um, blown away by to see when I was preparing for this podcast was that prior to this season Matthews and Marner had played 231 minutes combined 5-on-5 five five in their 207 games together as Leafs over the past three years. This year they're already up to 204 minutes in just 36 games and they've been absolutely out of this world together. I mean, they're outscoring teams 17 to 7. They've got a 67.5% high danger rate, a 64.6 expected goals. I mean, all of the numbers are through the roof. And I understood last year when, you know, Marner and Tavares had found so much chemistry right out the bat and you kind of kept them going. But the fact that they finally kind of went along with this and did it and Keith was willing to try it and it's like oh yeah putting your best shooter with your best passer and creating all sorts of havoc with that in the offensive zone is probably going to lead to good results and we've finally seen it pay dividends for them yeah crazy what happens when you put the team's best passer and best shooter on the ice together just such a novel concept stuff yeah 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 you should be a head coach Dimitri yeah but- well one of my favorite things about this Matthews Marner debate is the fact that when you look at the numbers, it was really interesting over the last couple of years. Matthews and Marner, even though they were special offensive players when it came to putting up points, their shot differentials at 5-on-5 five five never really added up to their talent. It was very much like a, a Steven Stamkos or a Patrick Kane. They were outscoring their problems because they're phenomenal talents in the offensive zone, but they weren't as good at getting the puck back. And I think this year, if, if you watch Austin Matthews closely... 
especially under Sheldon Keith, he's been so engaged without the puck, and that's been the biggest criticism of his game, and it's one that I've had of him both this year and in last year and in the last couple of years. Even though he's a special offensive talent, you never saw him backtrack like a Pavel Datsyuk or backtrack even like a Sidney Crosby. And it's frustrating when someone has that talent, and I'm thinking of maybe James Harden in the NBA, when you see a special talent offensively just not putting in the effort defensively, you're mad because you know that their overall impact could be better just because of how incredibly talented they are austin matthews i think if you watch him closely over the last few weeks he's been completely on fire not just offensively but when he loses the puck in the offensive zone he'll turn around skate put his head down skate as fast as he can force a a turnover with a stick lift and then get a three on two the other way and score and it's just it's incredible to watch especially when the leafs are losing it seems like he kind of reaches that extra gear and i know we talk about the uh, evgeny malkin red mist when he goes into red mist mode he's just a freak and you can't mess with him when austin matthews realizes that his team's losing by a goal or two and he needs to score a goal it might be my favorite thing to watch in the nhl right now other than Connor mcdavid completely embarrassing morgan riley but (laughs) austin matthews is just he's so fun to watch now and it felt like that was missing under Mike Babcock I'm not sure how much of that is unleashing him with a Mitch Marner I'm not sure how much of that is honestly just Matthews buying into the coaching staff I know that him and Babcock never really saw eye to eye there were those infamous meetings in the summers of uh, Arizona over the last couple years but it feels like Sheldon Keefe uh, is on the same page with Matthews is on the same page with the team as a whole Matthews and Marner have been close friends over the last couple years it it sounds like they really wanted to play with each other and like you said with the numbers the on-ice results with what we're seeing when we watch them play they're bringing out the best in each other and this Tavares uh, Nylander combination has also looked great that's the biggest question you had to ask yourself if Matthews and Marner are playing together is it going to be worth it with what you're getting on that next line with Tavares Nylander Nylander's proving that even though he might not have the uh, the high-end passing ability of a Mitch Marner he's able to get his team into the offensive zone and stay there I think if we just talked about a pure possession player much like we see in soccer back in the day with like the Chavis and Iniestas the players who just wanted to have possession all the time Nylander's that kind of player and he sets himself up in the offensive zone with Tavares and company and they've been doing some damage this year Tavares finally looking like himself again he started off the year with a baby didn't look too good suffered that finger injury i think uh, a few weeks into the season but now that everything's clicking you're starting to see this top six on the on the leafs look the way that we all expected it to look earlier in the year reminds me a bit of tampa bay both teams kind of started the year and you didn't know what the heck was going on and now if you look at their numbers over the last month everything kind of makes sense again yeah all's right in the world yeah the, the Nylander thing is uh is worth hammering home because it's not too long ago that there was a lot of consternation and angst about um whether he was overpaid and whether Lee's ain't a mistake and now you look at it and it's like oh we've got this guy for his age 23 to 27 seasons at under 7 million uh we'll take that considering he's on pace for what 35 goals now and 70 plus points and the neutral zone work has always been there with his ability to maneuver and get and carry the puck into the zone the thing that's really stuck out to me this year is I think he has changed and I'm not sure how much of that is his sort of a concerted effort to uh, either add another facet to his game or shut the critics out down but it feels like he has also made uh, a concerted effort to change his shot profile as well getting much closer to the net and just dominating in terms of the high danger looks I think our friend 
Andrew Berkshire has him as uh, on based on SporLogic's data as uh, the Leafs leader in terms of inner slot shots per per minute, and he has just been crushing it there as well. And that's coincided with the shooting percentage bump we would have expected naturally, anyways. And so now that he's not shooting five percent or whatever he was last year, and the pucks are starting starting to go into the net, the outlook on him and his contract and how good he is certainly looks significantly different than than, than this time last year. Yeah, everyone in, in Toronto radio and TVs has been trying to trade Nylander for years, and it's especially been the case over the last year when he came in on December 1st, or I guess it was December 7th, his first game, after the, the two-month contract dispute. I think that lost him a lot of, um, I guess, fans and fanfare and resulted in a lot of uh, the older generation not being a big fan of William Nylander and everyone calling him Perimeter Willie, you know, and getting frustrated with his effort. And for what it's worth, I can understand frustration with the player when they don't put in a lot of effort. I know someone like Alex Semin maybe comes to mind from back in the day, a player who was always incredibly talented. And if you looked at the numbers, you could see that the on-ice results, when he was on the ice, it was it was excellent. You always want a talented player on the ice instead of someone with less talent. But I think the frustrating thing with both a Semin and a Nylander is that you, you don't see the effort without the puck, and sometimes that can really frustrate you. I think Nylander has done a much better job of that this year, and he's helped, like you said, shut up some of the critics. When it comes to that perimeter uh, stat you were referencing, referencing Mike Kelly put out a great tweet the other day talking about how Nylander just scored his 20th goal of the season 16 have come from the net front area and that's the second most by any player in the NHL he's not on the perimeter he's getting to those high danger areas and he's been finishing this year yeah he certainly has well I think you know we're talking about here about Matthews Marner Nylander Tavares like I know at the start of the year it was a question because of the system and they weren't scoring enough goals and so it was a net negative now that they're back on track and pretty much under Keith they've been first in power play five on five goal scoring you name it the questions are going to kind of resurface now from the past couple years of all right this is exciting they're playing these eight six games against the Hurricanes it feels like every night uh, you're going to get double digit combined goals from them and their opponent and it's really fun to watch and really fun to follow but when a cut push comes to shove and we get to the playoffs and especially if they play a team like boston who plays so stylistically different will that be enough and will they be able to finally get over the hump and so i think that's kind of a natural segue to talking about the blue line to talking about freddie anderson because i think there's a lot to obviously unpack there as well especially now that you've got riley out you've got muzzin out um and, you know, they're moving some stuff around. They're obviously going to give Sandine a longer look here. And, and, and there's a lot of moving parts there. You, we can take this conversation pretty much anywhere you like. Yeah, and I know that in Toronto, the big frustration is that this team, are they gritty enough? Are they t- tough enough? Are they strong enough defensively? I don't think a lot of fans will be happy until this team is winning games one nothing or 2-1 and it's just not a team that's designed to win that way. It's a team that's designed to win 4-3 or 5-4 and at the end of the day, the team with the more goals wins, so in theory it shouldn't really matter which way you play stylistically as long as you do it better than the other team and if you can force the game to be played that way and if you can win tight games, which the Leafs proved they were able to do in the playoffs last year against the Bruins they played a a tight 1-1 game, I think it was in game five it was so close nothing was really happening but the Leafs actually outplayed them they outshot outchanced them and outscored them in that game so it's this weird narrative in Leafs Nation that you're trying to unpack you're trying to figure out how much of it is true how much of it is the team is clearly not that great defensively but how much of that can be cured by the offensive ability by players like Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, John Tavares, the fact that the power play is once again a, a top three power play in the league. 
but there are holes on the roster. Like you said, even in a healthy lineup, if you're giving Morgan Riley and Tyson Berry a lot of minutes, those are two players who have historically always given up a lot defensively. Uh, with Jake Muzzin out of the lineup, it's really forced the team to play some players in, in tougher, high-leverage minutes who aren't used to it. And now with Morgan Riley out, it's forcing Travis Dermott to be on the first pair, and this is his first time really facing tough competition. I've always been a Travis Dermott truther. I've always been someone who thinks that this guy deserves more minutes, much like a Nate Schmidt in years past or uh, Shea Theodore or Braden McNabb or any of the other guys who went to Vegas and performed well in, in higher leverage minutes. I always thought that Travis Dermott is the kind of player who tightens things up in the neutral zone. He doesn't let you gain the zone. Yeah, he gives up a few odd man rushes, but the pros tend to outweigh the cons when he's on the ice. I'll be curious to see how that play style works against top competition because there's an argument to be made that the more aggressive, high-risk style is better off on a second pairing against more sheltered competition because that way, if you make a mistake, at least it's not with the other team's best scorer on the ice. It's with a third liner on the ice, and you can live with that. And Mm -hmm. there's more of a a pro-con kind of element to it. We saw that with Eric Carlson back in Ottawa. They preferred playing him against second and third uh, lines as opposed to the top competition. Now, when you have Phaneuf and CeCe going up against the top competition that's not necessarily ideal i'm not sure if that's the best way to do things but if they actually had someone who could handle those minutes i could see it being a good thing um with the leafs i think the big thing we need to talk about under sheldon keefe is the odd man rushes it's something i'm going to be writing about later this week but mm-hmm. it's not in the public metrics and i think that's the hard part is that we don't have any kind of empirical data that we can point to and say this has been a problem lately look at this it's something that if you had sport logic data if you had some private data we could look at it and talk about it but from watching the games closely I, i've been doing the post game report cards for all uh games this year and over the last couple of weeks i've noticed a trend is that in the third period if the team has a multiple goal lead that's usually score effects wise we'll see teams shut things down try to play sludge hockey you know off the glass and out and no odd man rushes against the leafs haven't really changed their play style they're, they're still playing the same style of hockey which we've always argued in the past is a good thing is that teams will be better off if they didn't know the score and they just tried to get another goal because if you score that next goal now the game's completely over and the team stands no chance of coming back the Leafs have done a good job of that but they're also having sometimes four players deep in the offensive zone four below the dots they get caught for a two-on-one the other way and the opposition scores i know you're out, out west so you probably saw that leafs vancouver game where vancouver i think had three breakaways in the third period despite <laughs> the fact that the leafs were holding a lead that's not something you ever want to see as a coaching staff so i think it's a really interesting conversation when it comes to the score effects aspect of things because we all know that when a team has the lead they're not going to be pouring on the pressure as much as you know in a tie game game or when they need to score and that makes sense because when you're holding a lead there's more cost to allowing a goal than there is benefit for scoring a goal right and i think the leafs right now they're playing such a high event game while losing that it results in other teams getting back in games where maybe they shouldn't be and we have to get into that conversation of well would they be better off playing some sludge hockey some safe off the glass and out dump and changing in the neutral zone instead of holding on to the puck that's where we get into that conversation i think it's an actually interesting one to have but i think that kind of leads into what we were talking about babcock and the shift under keith which was kind of jamming the square peg into the round hole and how babcock was essentially his undoing was having a different vision or a different plan for how he wanted this team to look and so he wasn't utilizing the toys he was given by Kyle Dubas and and Brendan Shanahan the way they were intended to be used and so I think this team especially when you're talking about guys like Riley and Barry like part of what makes them effective net positive players 
is that kind of creativity and their ability to, when they're fully unleashed and fully unlocked, jump into the play and create. And so I think if you're asking them to play a different game, depending on the score state, you can really get into trouble there. Now, obviously, I think if there's like two minutes left in a game and you're hanging on, that's one thing. I think when you go up early in a game, though, and teams fundamentally change the way they're playing just because they're up early, I think that's when you can get into trouble the most. So I think you kind of have to accept it. I think that this really opens up a whole nother can of worms in terms of our, as a collective, and I think you and I certainly um, are included in this as well, are, are kind of biases when it comes to, um, you know, reacting to individual plays and basically judging results or, or judging the process based on the results. If a puck goes into the net, you all of a sudden latch onto that as opposed to if the goalie makes the save, you might be willing to overlook it or, or not think twice about it. And so, I think there's so much uh, at work there and the Leafs kind of and part of what makes them interesting beyond just uh, the size of the market and the media uh, coverage of them is that they really kind of strike all of those notes and lead to this polarizing discussion of how you can play and how what's the most optimal way to win hockey games. And the way that they've built their roster, they've really bought in skill and they've really bought in when it comes to puck moving. And they've put defense a bit on the back burner when it comes to acquiring a Tyson Berry, who is very similar to a Morgan Riley, when they uh, don't really have any any strong defensive players on their blue line other than Jake Muzzin. So what this reminds me of is in basketball, when the Golden State Warriors decided that we're going to build a team around jump shooting, it was what they saw as, you know, market inefficiency. This is the best way to win basketball games. Well, you can't win a title by jump shooting. Every team was ever won, won it by dominating low in the post. And whenever the Warriors lost a game in the playoffs where they got out rebounded or, you know, or they got bullied down low, you'd hear Charles Barkley on TV going off about how a jump shooting team can't win a championship. And then they do it. And all of a sudden the narrative changes. And now basketball, if you look at it, it's Steph Curry basically changed the NBA by forcing the league to uh, realize the importance of three-point shooting. And I think the, the Rockets contributed to it as well. With the Leafs, I'm curious to see if they can prove the importance of creating offense in that if you have enough talented offensive players who can create things off the rush and hold on to the puck, and if you have the puck and the other team doesn't, Maybe it's okay that you're not that great defensively because you're going to have it for 55% of the game and you're going to have 55% of the shots, chances, and goals at the end of the day. Even if you struggle in your own end and it doesn't look pretty when Cody Ceci and Morgan Riley are defending a three-on-two rush, at least in the in the long run, you have those offensive players who are going to get you there to the point where you've won the game 5-3. Now, is that the way that we've been taught that hockey is supposed to be played and the way that you know tough teams have to play in the playoffs? It doesn't fit that narrative. So... I really want a team like Tampa Bay or Toronto to win a cup. But then again, didn't we see this with Pittsburgh a few years ago yeah. when Crosby, Malkin, I mean, you had the third line of Hagelin, Kessel, the HPK, Nick Benino. That team wasn't very good defensively either year. I know the second year, it was a, I think it was a bit more fluky that second year when they had Ron Hainsey on the top pairing. I'm not sure if that's an ideal way to build a contender. I know Mike Babcock might disagree. <laughs> but uh, I think you look at that first year of uh, Pittsburgh winning a cup under Mike Sullivan, they knew they weren't good defensively. They looked at their blue line. They went, okay, Chris Letang, we like him. He's great with the puck. Not that great defensively. Look at the other players on here. Justin Schultz and company. Never been great defensively, but he can advance the puck up the ice to our talented forwards who can create off the rush. Phil Kessel and Carl Hagelin can destroy Roman Polak off the rush in transition, and that's what we saw in the Stanley Cup final, and it's part of the reason that team won the Cup. I think the Leafs are built in that mold. 
and a lot of people in this market want them to play like the Boston Bruins or the St. Louis Blues or even the Vegas Golden Knights with Ryan Reeves on their fourth line. Fundamentally, that's just not how they're built. And I'm not sure if anyone, if, if the, the fans who feel that way are ever going to change their mind. And I, I think I've accepted that because when I look at my least report cards, the comment section, a lot of it is just about, oh, you know, Floatlander. That's that's William Nylander. Floatlander, mm, just, you know, not backchecking this team. They, they need more grit. They need more toughness. They need a player like, and then you'll you'll see the list of, you know, Roman Polaks and Mark Boriakis. And it's just, it's not the way I think the team needs to be built. But at the same time, I can understand why team why, why fans want a bit more uh, defense on the team because Tyson Berry, he's been a conundrum this year. Yeah. He, he's been such a fascinating player because the first month and a half under Mike Babcock, he was an, an absolute disaster. It was unmitigated, just brutal. He was being asked to play defensively. He wasn't very good defensively. He wasn't on the first power play unit. He wasn't jumping up into the rush. He wasn't even jumping up into the cycle in the offensive zone. He was kind of standing stationary at the blue line. And you've watched Tyson Berry in Colorado. That's not how he plays. He's a rover. He plays a lot like Roman Yossi, uh, Morgan Riley. He likes having the puck on his stick. We've seen it a bit more under Sheldon Keith. But one of the interesting things with Berry is that up until Morgan Riley got injured recently, Barry had been playing with Morgan Riley, and they both play hockey the exact same way. They like having the puck. They like moving around the perimeter in the offensive zone. They like jumping up in the play. But when you're playing with a partner like that and they jump up in the rush, you can't also jump up in the rush. You have to stay back on the blue line. I'm wondering if now that Morgan Riley's hurt and Tyson Berry's forced to play with either Travis Dermott or Erasmus Sandin, I'm curious if we see him take that next step offensively or that next step when it comes to impacting the game. Because even though his numbers have looked solid over the last month or so, I would question how much of that was directly a product of his play and how how much of it was a product of Austin Matthews playing at the same time as him, Morgan Riley playing pretty well over this past month until he got hurt. So it's always a tricky thing with these on-ice numbers. When a player has fantastic on-ice numbers over, let's say, a month, how much of it was that player specifically driving those results and how much of it was kind of the context and the situation around him and his line mates and and, and company? It's a tricky thing to, to really get to the bottom of. Well, look at a, a great example for me, and I know there's some health involved, certainly, and last year he was banged up, and now he looks like he's fully healthy, but like Kevin Shattenkirk, for example, last year, when he gets bought out, it's like, yeah, I mean, he certainly struggled, and I think he could play better, but his most common line mates he was sharing the ice with were like Frederick Clayson and Brendan Smith and Jimmy Vc, and now he goes to Hedman and Kucherov and Point and Stamkos, and those are the guys he's getting out there with, and his usage is significantly different in terms of who he's playing and who he's playing with and where he's starting out on the ice and so his underlying numbers are through the roof and i remember at the start of the year he was near the top of most war models and everything and it's going to be a fascinating sort of test case to see how much teams buy into that because he smartly bet on himself and basically just considering the rangers are going to be paying him regardless took this little one-year sweetheart um, build up his value back up deal with the lightning and so now he's going to hit the free agent market again at the same time as as uh tyson berry this summer and i'll be curious to see like how the teams value those guys and how much uh kevin shattenkirk has bought himself uh, in terms of goodwill and stock with teams that are going to be spending on him this summer as opposed to how much money tyson berry's cost himself with 
this season because uh, I, I think those scripts have flipped quite a bit based on where those two guys were last year. And I think that we do take into account quality of teammates and quality of competition and all that. But I think sometimes as much as we do, we can also uh, conveniently overlook it. And I think in this case, there's a lot of that going here. I'm not buying that it's like, oh, he's a different player or the market is different. And so he's changed his game. I think it is just a matter of he is uh, he was taken from one situation and thrown into a significantly different one. And the results are unsurprisingly different. Yeah, and with Kevin Shattenkirk, it's funny. I remember when I was doing my season preview, kind of prepping for it, going through every team, rereading Dom Lucision's uh, season previews. And I realized, I'm like, wait, Kevin Shattenkirk's on this team? Patrick Maroon's on this team? I, I forgot that those guys had signed with them in the offseason. It's crazy how Tampa Bay is arguably a better team now than they were last year, just when you look at their pure roster talent. I don't get how they keep doing it. Well, and the thing I give them credit for, and I had this on my list of notes as well, not that the Leafs have necessarily... Um, fallen culprit to this although you could argue that based on the way mike babcock approached the first six weeks of the season they did and the fact that they didn't address it in the summer um makes this uh management group to blame as well but it's this idea of overreacting to playoff failures and especially if you lose to if you're a a profile of a skilled team and you lose to a more defensively minded kind of grittier tougher bigger team overreacting to that to playoff failure and going into the summer either changing your personnel or the way you play and basically kind of ironically uh, negating what made you special and effective and got you to the playoffs in the first place. And we see that time and time again around this league. And I wonder, um, you know, just psychologically, it's such a it's such a fascinating thought experiment of like how teams combat that and how you don't let that sort of market pressure and everyone going on radio shows and on Twitter and talking about how something needs to change and, and overreacting and panicking to playoff losses, how you fight that and combat that and basically go, no, we realize that we do a certain thing well and we're going to double down on that and the Leafs have done that now and so I give them credit for that and the Lightning did as well I mean Patty Maroon is a bit more of a sort of gritty type but they didn't after getting swept historically by the Blue Jackets they certainly didn't go away from what made them special this summer either and so that's what makes the Leafs and the Lightning and this potential round one matchup between them that we seem to be trekking towards such like a a fascinating subplot of like which way it's going to go and which team's going to come out on top and what the storyline stemming from that will be. Well, we all know that it's going to end up being Leafs first Bruins in the first round. It's going to go seven games and the Leafs are going to do something disastrous in that game seven. Somehow Jake Gardner is going to find his way back onto the team. Parachutes and, in. And yeah. <laughs> turn it over from behind the net. But I think the perfect example of what you're talking about when it comes to understanding what your team does well and leaning into it and maybe learning from the mistakes of past teams. Look at the Washington Capitals. You know, they were a team that was built on the best player on their team was the best goal scorer in the history of the game. And when it didn't work out under Bruce Boudreaux and they fired him after, you know, yet another game seven loss, what they decided to do is let's bring in Dale Hunter. You know, we're really going to toughen things up here. We're going to teach Ovechkin how to play defensive hockey. Didn't go very well. Ovechkin, I think the worst year of his career, if not the second worst year of his career. It didn't start changing until they brought him Adam Oates to help get things going again on the power play. He helped kind of revitalize Ovechkin's career in that regard. And when Barry Trotz was brought in, a lot of people thought, oh, no, this defensive coach from Nashville, he's going to come in and he's going to suck the life out of Ovechkin's game. 
he realized that he had one of the most talented rosters in the league. He, he set Ovechkin free and let him do his thing offensively, but he also did help tighten some things up in the defensive zone. But I don't think the thing that uh, Barry Trotz gets enough credit for, we always talk about him as this defensive guru and what he's done the last two years in Long Island. It's, it's really incredible what he's done with that defensive zone structure. But offensively, he got that Washington Capitals team to be very creative off the rush. I know if you look at their their shots and their scoring chances over the last few years, especially under Barry Trotz, they weren't that great. They were break-even to above average, but they were never top-five level in the league. But if you were watching their games closely or if you had access to some private data, you'd see that they were generating chances off the rush at a high rate, and they were generating those cross-ice passes at a high rate. I think some of that might be the talent on the roster when you have a Nick Backstrom and an Evgeny Kuznetsov you're going to be making more of those passes naturally but I think the team clearly wanted their forwards to be creating that movement in the offensive zone and that was because of the coaching leaning into their strengths offensively and I think if you look at the Leafs their roster construction is similar to those Capitals teams back in the day who's your best player well it's a player who's going to score 50 goals this year in Austin Matthews if he stays healthy who's one of your you know often criticized player well this European dynamic skill player who he takes some shifts off here and there but when he's on the ice, it, good things tend to happen and the pros outweigh the cons. Salmon Nylander, who's your best defenseman? Well, I would argue Jake Muzzin, but most of the fan base thinks it's Morgan <laughs> Riley, who is a phenomenal offensive talent, much like Mike Green, but you need to figure out a way to not let his defensive concerns you know, screw you over. Right. I think the Leafs need to learn from Washington's uh, you know, mistake of going in the Dale Hunter direction. And clearly Kyle Dubas is buying in to what Sheldon Keefe is doing right now, but I don't think the rest of the fan base is. I think the rest of the fan base is still a bit skeptical. I know that the the recent success when it comes to whether or not you're talking about the predictive results and the in the shots and the chances and the expected goals, or if we're just talking about, you know, descriptively, they've won a lot of games over the last month and a half. It's, it's been great, obviously, but I don't think you're going to convince some people until this team wins uh, a round in the playoffs where they're throwing hits and they're punching people in the mouth. And I just don't think that's the style of hockey this team's built to play. You have Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, William Nylander, John Tavares outskill the other team. They're not going to be able to keep up with your talent and your skill. And that's the type of game Toronto wants to play. Possession wise, they want the puck. Well, and I guess the question here moving forward and spinning it forward and looking ahead is for a lot of these teams like the Lightning, for example, um, you know, there aren't going to be any fundamental changes between now and the trade deadline, but the Lightning do have a variety of different ways that if they see something, uh, they can address it with the assets they have and some flexibility in terms of moving some stuff around. Uh, the Penguins, similarly, a lot of those Eastern Conference teams do, whereas with the Leafs, beyond just getting healthy and getting Muzzin and Riley back into the lineup, uh, um, that's kind of the interesting thing with them where it's like there aren't too many sort of tangible blueprints for how you can significantly improve this team given the draft capital they've already given given up how much they've already kind of committed themselves financially to this roster and so beyond getting healthy and I guess you know some hopefully improvements from young players and young contributors that are already in the lineup it kind of this is the team they're likely going to have when they get healthy heading in and I guess the question of whether that's enough when you have teams like the Lightning who are similar Similarly, playing remarkably well lately, but still have some extra sort of bullets in, in, in their chambers to fire if they if the opportunity presents itself at the deadline. Yeah, and what we might forget is that the Leafs traded away their first round pick this year to help get rid of Patrick Marlowe's cap hit yep. in the offseason. That went to Carolina. Carolina made a few trades like that. They picked up a first round pick. I believe they acquired Dominic Bach as well uh, in a trade like For that. Falk, I just yeah. yeah, I really like what. 
they got Terabinen for taking up uh, Bickle's contract a couple of years ago. Yeah, that's worked out pretty decently for him, I'd say. Yeah. yeah He's well, doing all right there. There are a couple of teams now. Uh, I know in the most recent 31 Thoughts, Elliot Freeman talked about how the Ducks have expressed interest in using their cap space to take on other people's mistakes and get uh, future helpful assets for them. I know the Blackhawks, I've identified them as a very interesting team because they can basically take on anyone's expiring contract the rest of the season with Seabrook on LTIR and DeHaan on LTIR. And so the thing I keep coming back to is... Uh, whether the Leafs would explore potentially moving Cody Cece in that direction and opening up that cap hit of his to take on a more useful contributor. The issue is if you look at the market of defensemen that are plausibly available for uh, a reasonable price, there's players that I'd view as improvements over CC, but there isn't anyone that I view as kind of this like slam dunk home run trade where it's like you go out and get that guy and he's automatically going to be a surefire top four player for you that's going to move the needle. And so I guess that's the question for them beyond just like whatever conversation we want to have about Cody CC and how good he is or how, how bad he is. It's what are you using with that space and how are you going to fill it and whether you're actually going to tangibly improve it if you're the Leafs. Yeah, with Cody Ceci, I think it's fair to say he's, what, a number six defenseman in the NHL, if that? Uh, I mean, I mean look, some at, people- look at his usage. He went from 18 minutes at 515 and 2205 under Babcock, which was just insane. But I guess more fitting for this, given the system and his individual skill set, to 1633 at 515 and 1948 overall under Keefe. And he's kind of, I think at times, I think we can go too far. It's very easy to kind of dunk on him with like, oh, look how bad he looked on this play and he makes it easy on us. But I think just even on regular plays, he kind of sticks out like a sore thumb now on occasion on this team given the direction they're trending in and how they've gone back this kind of fast-paced off-the-rush skill game and so um, I think the the usage itself really kind of speaks to how the Leafs and how Sheldon Keefe feel about him uh, regardless of any online debates we might have about his value. Yeah, and the thing that you brought up there, the way that he kind of sticks out like a sore thumb when you watch him play, it reminds me a lot of, uh, I I watch a lot of soccer, and when you have a really skilled team that has a lot of skilled playmakers, and then they put that one really tall guy on the pitch who can, you know, do headers, and they try passing the ball on his feet, and he'll always lose it. I feel like sometimes when you see the Leafs making these fancy passes in the offensive zone, and between the legs, behind the back, you know, one-touch pass, and then it ends up on Cody Cece's stick, and a lot of the times he takes that extra second, that extra two seconds to make a play. Now nobody's open. Now he kind of flings it into the boards. It's a puck battle. The least lose the puck battle and the puck's going the other way. He never really makes that brutal kind of Jake Gardner mistake right in front of your net that's just going to drive you nuts. But I think it's death by a thousand paper cuts with him. He plays that kind of safe off the glass and out style. He hasn't been making the off, and glass, off the glass and out passes as much as usual. But I still think that a player like uh, Timothy Lilligren, who's been performing really well for the Marlies this year he's still young and he's still someone I think can make an impact at the NHL level so when it's all said and done are Sandine and Liljegren on the playoff roster I think with how well they played this year I'd make the argument that they both should be on the playoff roster and at that point you have Riley Muzzin Dermott Sandine, Barry, Hall, Liljegren. That's seven players right there. I'm not sure if this team needs to make a trade if Sandine and Liljegren are legit and they can come in in these next couple of weeks and help the Leafs kind of get over these injury concerns. Mm. The bigger question for me is when Jake Muzzin gets back and he's 100%, when Morgan Riley gets back and he's 100%, what do these pairings look like? And are the Leafs still in a market for the defensemen? Or have Rasmus and Sandine and... Uh, to with Illigrin, have they proven the fact that you don't need to rent a player anymore because we've kind of provided that for you in a similar way to when Travis Dermott was called up his first season? The Leafs were thinking about trading for a defenseman, but Dermott had played so well that they didn't need to anymore. 
Well, and I will say, I don't want to panic troll here, but I do think it's fair to point out that a lot of this conversation, we're like just skipping past it and viewing the rest of the regular season as a formality. And especially given the injuries and, and how the past couple of games have looked, I know uh, the game against New Jersey was a different story, but what I'm, what I'm talking about just purely against NHL teams, um, the Leafs have certainly shown some warts now. And so I think with how close Florida is and how absolutely just obscenely dominant the Metro division is and, and very likely might qualify five teams this season, um, it isn't like a, necessarily a foregone conclusion that we can just like write this Atlantic division in stone. I think there are still a lot of moving parts there. And so I think, um, you know, braving this storm here and kind of riding it out while you have these injuries is one thing. But I do think like the next couple weeks are going to be really telling in terms of what they can get out of a guy like Sandy. And I know he looked good in his first cameo back after the World Juniors, but I think they're going to need to even more from him because we've seen the minutes plummet for a guy like CC. I think they're asking a lot of players now to all of a sudden do more than their skill sets are probably suited for. And that's when I think we get into trouble when it's not just that the player is struggling, but but it's that you're asking him to do too much and then it kind of compounds the issue. And I think we might see that with this Leafs Bullen. Yeah, and the thing with Travis Dermott, he's getting first pair usage right now. For the longest time, he'd been on the third pair and never even got a shot on the second pair. And I was just begging for him to be put on a second pair and see what he could do because he's been absolutely crushing his third pair of minutes for the last few years. And typically when someone dominates that well against sheltered competition, if you bump up the usage a little bit, he'll continue to play well. He won't keep dominating at the extent that he was, but usually when you're that good at crushing third and fourth lines, you can do decently against second lines and you can take the odd shift against a first line. Right now, Travis Dermott's being hard matched to first lines, and I'm not sure if he's ready for that. I'm not sure if that's ever going to be the kind of player he is, but I think him and Rasmus Sandin, I think right now, can both play on a second pair. I think they're both that good when it comes to how well they move the puck, how well they shut things down in the neutral zone. Uh, The biggest frustration I have with a lot of Leafs defensemen, whether it's uh, Morgan Riley or Tyson Berry or, or Cody Ceci, is that they back up so much in transition defense. They back up behind center ice, behind their own blue line. They back up onto their goalie and give the opposing forward a free entry into the offensive zone and a free passing lane across the ice. Sandy and Dermott do an excellent job of standing up on opponents in the neutral zone, stepping up on them before they get to the red line. Even when you watch Travis Dermott play, a lot of the times defense will step up at the blue line and force you to dump it in. Travis Dermott forces you to make a decision at the red line. He doesn't want you to be able to dump it in. He doesn't want you to get past center ice. And I've always really valued that in his game, but I'm curious to see if it's going to work against some of the best players in the league, because now there's a higher likelihood of him getting walked when that happens because there's a higher skill player. And also there's a a bigger kind of payoff for the other team because now it's a high skill player with a two on one instead of a third or fourth liner with a two on one where they usually can't do too much damage. So I'm curious if Travis Dermott can still find a way to make things work in the top half of the lineup. I think a second pairing for him might be ideal in the long run. But again, when Muzzin and Riley come back, Dermott's probably relegated back to the third pairing. Uh, Rasmus Sandin's going to be a very interesting player to watch because there's never one specific trait that stands out to you when, when you watch his game. It's not like he's an elite skater. It's not like he has a fantastic shot. It's not like he's Eric Carlson when it comes to whipping these stretch passes. But he's just a smart player and he makes the right play so often that I think on a team that relies on puck possession and puck movement and getting all five players on the ice moving and, and getting everyone to touch the puck i think that's really going to benefit a player like sandine and i think he can do a lot more with with more minutes so with dermot getting north of 20 minutes a night with sandine getting a lot more than he's got in the past 
we're going to see if this Leafs blue line can hold up over these next few weeks. I think they can, but again, I've been wrong many times before, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, it might be a bit of a blessing in disguise getting Sandine back in there, even if it means uh, burning up that first year of ZLC. But I think, you know, where he's really going to excel, and I, I think we already saw a little bit of it, is that offense's own awareness of becoming more of a sort of new breed of modern defenseman from the perspective of not only walking the blue line, but how often we see defensemen just because it's the safe play fire the puck towards the net from a low percentage angle and most oftentimes right into directly into a shot blocker's shin pads and it just completely ends a possession. With Sandine, we've already seen that willingness to kind of hold on to the puck and wait for shooting lanes. Uh, to open and then the ability to get the puck through so that you know a Zach Hyman can tip it for example from unique angles and so I think that's going to fit in perfectly to the system and what we'll be talking about from what they want to do in the offensive zone in terms of prioritizing quality and getting it down down low closer to the net to your skilled players where their forwards can take advantage and I think Sandine's a perfect fit from that regard. Yeah, and I've taken a lot of flack this year for criticizing point shots because I I get really frustrated when a a player at the blue line has a clear sight to the net, there's no screen, and they just fire a shot on net because to me, that's a turnover. You know, that you're not going to create anything off of that. There's not going to be a rebound. It's just going to be a whistle. But when you're Rasmus Sandin and you're walking the line and you create a shooting lane and there's clearly traffic in front and you make eye contact with the player that you're trying to send the tip to and you basically saucer pass it to somewhere he can shoot it. Sometimes that saucer pass is two feet in the air sometimes it's three feet in the air sometimes it's you know just a couple inches off the ice sometimes it's on the ice you see with the slap pass that's one of my favorite plays from the point i like those shots i really like the idea of trying to get the puck to the dangerous area where something good can happen but if you're just mindlessly firing a puck into a shin pad from the blue line or if you're shooting from the boards where there isn't any traffic that shot selection always drives me nuts and it's one of the things where when i'm doing the report cards i tend to dock players like tyson berry when they're blasting slap shots into shin pads or they, they have a long ozone possession in the offensive zone they're in there for a full minute and then you fire the puck into the goalie's glove when you could have made a better play with Rasmus Sandin, I agree with you. I think he's a player who sees the ice a bit better and understands that you want to pass players into open space, but if that space isn't there and I can make eye contact with a player in front of the net, I'm going to go for that deflection. I don't care about my shot beating a goaltender. I don't have that good of a shot, but I know that if I can get it through traffic and get it near a stick for a deflection, that's when good things are going to happen. And, and that's why he ended up being one of the Marley's better power play quarterbacks. It's funny, they had players that were specifically designed to be on the power play instead of Rasmus Sandin, but he always ended up being the better power play quarterback <laughs> because yeah. he he just he made the right decision to get Jeremy Bracco into open ice for a pass. Or if everyone was covered and he saw someone in front of the net, he knew that he could fire it low or fire it where their stick was, get a deflection and good things would happen. So sometimes it's not necessarily, you know, a, a big slap shot from the point that you need or, you know, that that elite saucer passing ability. Sometimes it's just knowing the right play, making quick decisions and being able to think fast and i think rasmus sandin's done a great job of that yeah all right well ian let's uh let's put a pin in this discussion we're going to take this conversation over to your podcast and we're going to talk more about the western conference and keep it going and so i'm looking forward to that and i highly recommend and hope that everyone who's listening to this right now goes and uh, goes and checks that out as well yeah, we'll be talking about your Vancouver Canucks. We'll be talking about some other teams. Uh, that's going to be on the Leafs Geeks podcast. Wherever you're listening to the the PDO cast, you can find it in the same spot. Uh, on Twitter, if you want to check me out, I'm at Ian Graff, which was a nickname famously given to me by Jeff O'Neill. 
Uh, I think after I wrote a Frederick Gauthier article, of all things, of all players <laughs> for me to defend and come to the defense to, Frederick Gauthier was my hill to die on in Leafs Nation. So there you go. Stranger things have happened, I guess. <laughs> Classic stuff. All right, man. Well, uh, I was going to say we'll talk soon, but we're going to talk really, really soon. So uh, let's take a couple minutes break here and we're going to pick it back up. Yep. Avalanche, Quinn Hughes, Kale McCarr, all the good stuff. Talk to you soon, buddy. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDOcast.